as we come to Luke chapter 14, again, we're looking at Jesus where he's moving toward Jerusalem and accomplishing that work and purpose that the Father sent him for to die on the cross for our sins and rise from the grave for our hope and justification. It's all moving toward Jerusalem. And much of his ministry is really focused on discipling the apostles. And I believe when we look at the text tonight, even just constantly putting out the invitation there for the religious leaders even to understand where they were wrong and through faith in him and repentance from their pride of, of sin, the sin of pride, that they could be saved. And I think we see that even in tonight's text. So we, we pick it up in chapter 14 where we read this. Now it happened as he, Jesus, went into the house of one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath, that they watched him closely. And behold, there was a certain man before him who had dripsy. And Jesus answering spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? But they kept silent. And he took him and healed him and let him go. And then he answered them, saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? And they could not answer him regarding these things. In this chapter tonight, we get Jesus addressing different people. And it's progressive. The, the end of this chapter, Jesus talks about being a disciple and his supremacy over all of our lives. And I really believe that as this chapter unfolds with the storyline here at this dinner table of a ruler of the Pharisees where they're breaking bread, that this progression of Jesus teaching, healing, the parable he's going to teach, parables and the things that he's saying, they're progressive and they really deal contextually, collectively with the idea of their lessons on discipleship. We saw in the previous text, where one came to Jesus and said, are few saved? Remember we talked about that, are few saved? Because Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, and there's huge multitudes following him, and are few saved? And that was a major point of topic recently when we were going through Luke. And tonight, I think we get some clarity on that, even this chapter coming forward from the last chapter 13. In the context, we see that this man has invited Jesus to his house for food. That's a you know, it's a sign of fellowship, of course, in the Middle Eastern culture, a breaking of bread. It's the very reason why Peter wouldn't go into the house of a Gentile, let alone break bread with them, because it shows that oneness. And we talk about this when it comes up contextually. But really, when the Pharisees invite Jesus to dinner, it's usually a trap. And we can even see from the context to some degree it was. But, so there was hypocrisy in it. But the one whose house he's at is a ruler of the Pharisees. So, um... He's a leader of leaders, because the Pharisees are leaders. They believe the Old Testament. They've added to it, but they believe it. And they're supposed to be leading God's people. And if he's a ruler of the Pharisees, he's a leader of leaders. We talk about in their own society, leaders make leaders. So he's a leader of leaders, religious leaders. And they don't know what to do with Jesus. And we know that many Pharisees are plotting his death. We also know, though, in the book of Acts, that many Pharisees come to a saving faith in Jesus Christ through the preaching of Peter and John. So we just don't know which group of Pharisees these are. But they're religious leaders who believe the Old Testament, but 
put their tradition over it, and they are at odds with Jesus, particularly on the Sabbath and Jesus healing on the Sabbath. It says in verse 1, they watched him closely. And it said there was a man there who had droopsy. So this understand this word droopsy is more of a symptom than an actual disease. It's a symptom of water in the, in the body tissue, the human tissue. So it'd be like water swelling from something going wrong, usually with your kidneys or your liver. So you'd be like swollen, like water weight. This droopsy, what's the word here used to describe this infirmity? Again, more of a symptom than an actual infirmity, probably something wrong with the, uh, the kidney or the livers, the liver or the kidneys. <clears throat> and Jesus asked them, with, isn't there, it's interesting to me, no matter where Jesus goes, there's always an opportunity for ministry, right? I mean, there's always somebody in need. You ever think about that? Like, in any group of humanity, there's always a need. There's always a need there. You might see it as obvious. This person has droopsy. There's something wrong with them physically. Like they're discolored or something. We don't know. But like there's always a need. There's always a physical need. There's always spiritual needs, emotional needs, mental needs. You know, like we're broken. Humanity's broken because of sin and our father being Adam. And it's like I just look here like there's always a need. And this man has a need on the Sabbath day. And so... Jesus asked these leaders, it says there, he, he spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. Now, lawyers mean studiers of the law of God in the Old Testament, not lawyers like we think of. So he says, so is it lawful? Is it right? Is it right to heal on the Sabbath? So now, while they're trying to trap him, he's like, I'm going to put something to you. And it says they kept silent. Verse 4, they could say nothing. There's just silence. Talk about an awkward dinner, right? right this is awkward if you think about it. Like, they're breaking bread. Everyone's, like, acting like everything's fine. But it's just, like, it's this really awkward human experience. And the elephant in the room is the man with Dripsy on the Sabbath day. Hey, six other days, it wouldn't have been an issue. But the reason Jesus healed on the Sabbath was to reprove the religious errors, the teachings of religious errors by these Pharisees. He's confronting their self-confidence and their self-made religion to save themselves, as opposed to letting the word of God be the final authority and believe in Jesus. So it's a conflict that's unavoidable. It's meant to happen this way. And so he heals him and he lets him go. So there's always a need. Jesus heals this man. And there's, there's the freedom, the physical healing freedom. There's the joy that would have come for the man. We've seen this throughout the Gospel of Luke. And then he says to these guys, now which of you wouldn't do this for an ox or a donkey? And notice how he said immediately. So he says, which of you wouldn't do this for your ox or your donkey immediately on the Sabbath. So he's just using common sense. He's like, hey, you would rescue your ox or your donkey. Ox, donkey that you own, your property, or a human being in physical need. He's, he's forcing them to compare what's of value to them. What's more valuable to them in their religious, self-made religious worldview? The ox and donkey that you would immediately rescue doing work on the Sabbath, which you would do without even thinking immediately, because he knows their hearts, or comparing that to the man who he just healed, and it says they could say nothing again. They could not answer him regarding these things, verse 6. So as we begin this text tonight, we just have this whole idea of the relationship Christ was calling people to have with him through repentance of their sin and their need for him, because he always called people to himself. And the conflict with the religion of these men 
who saw themselves as being self-reliant and self-justified before God by believing the Old Testament and their interpretation of it added to it and how they applied it to their lives and then forced it on people, the common people, who heard Jesus gladly but couldn't bear the yoke that these guys put on them. So that's our background. Now, we read on. Notice in verse 7 it says, So he told a parable to those who were invited when he noted how they chose the best places, saying to them. So let's just get our introduction now. So we're still at the dinner table. Okay, contextually, we're still at this awkward dinner table feast um, on the Sabbath day at the ruler of the Pharisee's house. And as Jesus has just healed this man of dripsy, and he puts forth these statements, and they have nothing to say. They're just, there's silence. There's this awkward silence. He looks around the room, and the first group of people that he's addressing now, contextually, this is important, are those who were invited. Hmm. So these are Pharisees and lawyers, studiers of the Old Testament law. And they were invited to the house of the ruler of Pharisees. So it's a pretty big deal. It's an important dinner party. They've been invited to their boss's house. And the boss has invited the rabbi, the, the one who some say is the Messiah, Jesus, to his house for dinner. And you get to come to that dinner party. It's, 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 kind of, it's an important dinner party. But like we said, it's pretty awkward. It's an awkward dinner party, but it's an important one. So in verse 7, he's addressing now the people that were invited. And he said in verse 8, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you and him come and say to you, Give place to this man. And then you begin with shame to take the lowest place, But when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. Then you will have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. For whoever exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, in this chapter, Jesus is going to talk about in the resurrection. So he's going to take the context of this dinner party, and put it in the context of eternity. We're moving toward there. So when we think about being humbled in this parable or exalted, it could happen in time, space, and matter in the human experience as we would practically apply this in our own lives. But now he was applying it to them, but really, ultimately, it is an eternity. It has the idea of eternity. We recently finished 1 Peter, and when we finished 1 Peter, one of the things that we saw there is that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And, of course, this parable brings us to that topic of the need for humility. The Bible talks about, you know, exam, David said in Psalm 139 that if we examine ourselves, he invited God to exam, examine him, search me and try me and know me. <clears throat> we know that Paul the Apostle exhorted the Corinthians that they need to examine themselves. And... We know from the totality of Scripture that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And in this context, if we're religiously proud like these guys were and think we're saving ourselves, we're just completely self-deceived. But if there's brokenness and humility and we see our need or they saw their need, that they were sinners in need of a Savior and Jesus is that Savior, then they would find grace. God resists the proud, those who don't see their need for 
for salvation by faith, but he gives grace to the humble. So that principle of grace and humility, they go together. In fact, when you think about in the book of Revelation, there, when the books are open, when the judgment takes place in the end of the age, that it implies that those books are open and before each person we can see why they're not going in the kingdom. And the, the, great, the great sin of all is pride. That was Satan's sin, was pride. I will do this, I will do that, I will do this, and I will do that. The Bible, the Bible gives us, through the prophets, an understanding of what happened in heaven during Satan's rebellion. And the key to his rebellion was in his beauty, he was lifted up in pride and somehow came up with a Darwinistic worldview that he could uh, evolve himself and ev- elevate himself to be equal to or greater than God. He was lifted up in pride. And that pride cost him his presence uh, of glory before the Father in heaven. It caused him to be cast out of heaven. And even in his original temptation with Eve and Adam and all subsequent temptations, we know that one of the three main areas of temptation is the pride of life. Pride. We are prone toward pride. We're not just prone to be selfish and self-centered. We are prone toward pride. It just, it runs, it's in our DNA, it's in our nature as the sons of Adam and daughters of Eve. But the original sin there was Satan's pride. And when you think about the books being opened in Revelation and why people don't make it into heaven, it, above all else, all other sins, pride is, is foundationally the root sin by which all other sins are linked. Because pride in the human heart says, I can save myself, or I'm good enough, or I can be my own God. And there are, there are various philosophies and, and human worldviews and, and things like that, and world religions that appeal to man's pride by which man can do it all and earn his way to heaven or become his own God, and God is then subject to him. And it's pride. And these guys had pride. Contextually, their problem was religious pride. They, they, they really believed, like maybe for most of us tonight, it's a little harder for us to, to grasp this, but contextually, we need to understand, these guys... They ruled God's people, and they misrepresented God in ruling them. And they had the scrolls and the scriptures of the Old Testament, the same ones that we have, essentially. And they misrepresented the heart of God in the scriptures. There was no other group of people on the face of the planet who were set aside as a nation with a covenant like this group of people. There was no other group of people entrusted with the stewardship of teaching God's word that he revealed to that nation about the Messiah who would come to that nation, Jesus Christ, than these religious leaders. Of all the religious leaders that ever existed in Jewish history of the Old Testament from Moses until the high priest rejecting him later on in this gospel, this generation... Jesus said all the judgments would come down on this generation. And it's this generation of religious leaders who it all came down upon. Their religious pride, they they did not see their need for God. They would have thought in many cases they were like King David or something. But David's greatness a thousand years before this was not his pride, but his brokenness before the Lord. And so in this context, at this dinner table, with these men there in positions of pecking order, it's as if it's, <laughs> it's, as if it's Pompey and Julius Caesar and 55 B.C. Rome, and, there are, and there's people posturing for power. It's like the Roman Republic before it became the Roman Empire, where it's the senators, and they're all positioning for power. 
And it's all about who's important and who's working their way up, but in a religious hierarchy within the nation because these religious positions became political positions. And instead of being positions by which to serve, they became positions by which to rule. And instead of being positions of shepherds to receive from the chief shepherd, they became positions of false shepherds leading the people astray and fleecing the flock. These are very dangerous, self-deceived men. And yet Jesus is teaching them something. Now, we don't know if the apostles were at the table in this mix, but we, they certainly probably were. They could have been. But, you know, he's actually teaching these guys. Think about this for a minute. He is teaching these religious leaders. I appreciate that. Just, just consider that for a moment. Go back to verse 7. He told the parable to those who were invited. So these people who are speechless, these religious leaders speechless before him, when they're at the house of their boss, he's teaching them. And he's trying to help them. He's trying to help them that God understand that God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And he's saying, because he knew their hearts, and so you all posture for positions of importance at the table, in this table to take on place of position with your boss in this whole situation. But I tell you, you should take the lowest seat so you can be exalted. Because there's a true principle, just like there's certain spiritual laws that govern God's universe. Sowing and reaping is one of them for sure, right? You sow sparingly, you reap sparingly. You sow bountifully, you reap bountifully. To the merciful, you'll find mercy. And this one is, whoever exalts himself will be humbled. And whoever humbles themselves will be exalted before God because God resists the proud. And so if these guys cannot humble themselves and recognize their need for faith in Jesus as their Savior, they're perishing. Like Jesus said in the Gospel of John, he didn't come to the world to condemn the world because the world is already condemned. They're condemned because they reject him as the Savior, John chapter 3 tells us. We're already condemned. We need to pass from death to life and condemnation to justification. And if our pride keeps us from humbling ourselves before the Lord and seeing our need for Christ and the willingness to repent from our sins, then we will die in our sins. There are only two purposes to be alive tonight. There are only two reasons we're alive here tonight. The first one is, if we're not saved, to be saved. And the only reason we have the breath of life in us is to be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. All those people down there today at Labor of Love and you serving them and us praying for them and the tracks being passed out and the prayer booth and all these things. There are only two purposes for the people on the planet that pass through there today. And the first one is, is to repent from their sins and believe in Jesus Christ. That is the purpose that they're alive in the very breath whom God holds in his hand is that they would pass from death to life. That is the only purpose that they are alive. The primary purpose is to be saved. They're not alive to serve themselves or to live a life of rebellion against God. But they're alive this day that they can be saved. And the second purpose we're alive is why we're here tonight. So we can fulfill his calling and purposes on our life. Like those of you down there serving today as well at Labor of Love. Or doing the sound tonight at 5 o'clock. There's only two reasons to be alive. To get saved or to be faithful in our service to the Lord and what he saved us for. There are no other reasons to be alive in God's economy. And these guys... They're perishing, and Jesus is trying to help them understand what they must do to be saved. They must take the lowliest position 
David once said in the psalm, I'm but a worm, I'm nothing. And yet his name is the name that would be ascribed to Jesus as the son of David. His name is the one by which every other king is measured by. If you're a good king, like his father David. If you're a bad king, not like his father David. It's a good reminder to us that we never move from the place of humility. Humility is, a, is an equity that we always want in our lives. And if something causes you embarrassment, if something humbles you, if something brings you to a place where you feel shame or whatever, it can immediately use for good if you can receive that humility. And if our lives can be a pattern of self-effacing ourselves before the Lord and serving others, we will do very good in life and we will fulfill the purposes in our life. But if we have too much pride that we never are willing to repent and trust in Jesus or we give our life to Jesus, but our pride constantly hinders how he can use us, then we we are wasting our life. Humility is the one attribute by which so many other good ones come forth from our life when it is demonstrated in our hearts, in our standing before the Lord. And throughout the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, humility is always in. Our religion and our self-imposed and self-made religion will never save us. It's going to be our faith in Jesus that always saves us. Brokenness before the Lord. And if we humble ourselves in this life and commit ourselves to him who is faithful, like we saw in 1 Peter, he will lift us up in due time. And it's not about being lifted up in time. It's not about a wrong in time being made straight and you being vindicated or me being vindicated, us being justified because of some evil or injustice. It's not about time. It is always about eternity. The scales of justice balance out perfectly in eternity. And humility is the attribute that transcends time, space, and matter into an effective and abundant entrance into the kingdom whereas pride will keep us from it. And it's, it's hard to be laughed at. It's hard to be humbled or, you know, whatever. But you learn that humility and brokenness are great attributes to have in our life. And we are so much more likely to fulfill God's will in our life if we have humility True humility as a disposition before God and brokenness before God and in how we look at people and how we look at his call in our life. Verse 12, we read on, then he, Jesus, also said to him who invited him. Okay, so let's shift gears. Jesus addressed all the invited guests. Now he's addressing the boss of the bosses, the leader of the leaders. Now he's addressing the big boss. He's addressing his host. When you give a dinner or a supper, do not ask your friends, your brothers, your relatives, nor rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Silence for everybody. Then he addresses all the invited guests, and now he's addressing the host in his house. So this has a very specific... Now, everyone else is hearing it. 
So the context overflows, but contextually, he's, he's talking to one person. It's like if you're, if you're at dinner with your family and dad's talking to Hannah, but, you know, it's directed to Hannah, but really affects Luke and Tim as well, right? It has that idea, like, you're still there. You're still part of the conversation. It's like, not like he's talking to him privately. Hey, I want to talk to you privately. Listen, when you invite people over, don't invite your rich neighbors. I can pay you back. Invite the poor, the blind, and the lame. The maim, you know? He's like, he didn't do that. Well, it's all, it's, it's a personal directed word, but it's in a public context. So there's lessons here for those listening, but the context is this man. So at this dinner table, what Jesus is saying is that these guys showed up trying to move up in their pecking order and to be important and be seen as important, like Roman senators, if you will. And this man, who's the leader of the Pharisees, Jesus is now kind of peeling back his heart a little bit, and it would seem by implication he's doing this with an ulterior motive. It would seem by what Jesus is saying you shouldn't have motives for, it could have been his motives. That... I do this for you, you do that for me, right? We all understand that. Hey, I do this for you, and you do that for me. That's how government works, by the way, right? So we'll do this, the Department of Defense will do this for the CIA, and then the CIA will do that for them. In return, you give us this intel, the FBI gives us that, and we all work together. Or you know, the sheriffs will give this for that, and then you know, Newport Police will cooperate and give us this information. We can work together on this. It's, and then you, know, you just get these, we're always looking for mutually beneficial things, but what we're really looking for is mutually beneficial alignments and collaborations that raise our stature and resources in time, space, and matter. Really. You know, that's pretty much insider trading. You might have seen it this week. An NFL player is going to prison because he did insider trading. He had a friend that went to one of the Ivy League schools that tipped him off on some things, and he's apologized for it. He's going to prison. It's a fact. But He's apologized for embarrassing. He was released by his NFL team this week when he was convicted. And, but, see, he's here, and he's got an important friend there, and they collaborated together with inside trader information to make a lot of money. That's the type of collaboration that the world looks for. I do this for you, you do that for me. Most of you in any kind of business understand that's often how it works. I scratch your back, you scratch my back. That's not how the kingdom works. We don't do, in the name of Jesus Christ, good things for people. We're not down there at labor of love, so somebody will come do something for us here at WG. That's not our motive. We're down there at labor of love because we love unconditionally. We see people in need of a savior. See, it's always dangerous when you see consumers instead of people. Let me say that again. It's always dangerous when you see consumers instead of people. People have supreme value with the Lord, but many people look at people as a consumer base by which they can derive something from. Governments take census so they can tax for larger amounts of money, generally speaking. You have more followers on Facebook or social media so you can get more from your advertisers. There's, you know, so however it works, it works that way. But it's not so at the kingdom because we're always called to be the servant And we are never called to serve people as a means to an end. So if the first lesson to the the group of people invited guests was about humility, the second lesson to the inviter is about humanity. Because it's about people. It's not about a big event, perfect sound mix, big names, all these kind of things. 
We're not trying to build an empire and organization. It's about people. By the way, something that struck me years ago when watching Mein Kampf on uh, Hitler and the rise of Nazi Germany, something very interesting. Some of you may know this if you know your history, but Hitler painted. Did you know that? Hitler was an artist. Yeah. He painted a lot between World War I and World War II. Of course, he was a veteran of World War I. But the fascinating thing that I observed when watching Mein Kampf about Hitler and his paintings that struck me, and they didn't even point it out, but it struck me as being very interesting, is you know what, was, what he painted and what he didn't paint. I'll tell you what he painted. He painted cities, buildings, villages. But you know it was never in any of his paintings? People. He never saw people. Hitler saw the thousand-year reign of the Third Reich. He saw conquering the world. He saw resources, government, power, survival of the fittest. He was a Darwinist. And his, his eugenics and his whole idea of breeding out bad breeds of people and focusing on good breeds of people as if he's like an American Kennel Club or something. That's how he thought. But he never saw people in his paintings. And you see his paintings to this day. It's buildings or cities with nobody in them. You do not want to see the planet like Adolf Hitler saw the planet. Kingdoms, but not people. The kingdom of God is people. And it's not the people that can benefit us and help us move upward. It's the people who we can wash their feet and serve them. Jesus said to his apostles, I have given you an example as you shall do. And blessed are you if you follow my example. You serve people. You serve the blind, the lame, and the maimed. You serve those that can give you nothing back. And that's the best type of service there is anyways. Because it's unconditional love. It's unconditional service. We, we need to check our hearts, and I speak for myself as well, why we do what we do sometimes. It, it's very important to just serve people unconditionally. Because you don't know what the Lord's wanting to teach you in that situation. We don't want to see a planet of buildings without people. And we don't want to just see people that can raise our stature or our payroll or work a good business deal with us. We want to see people who need a savior. We want to serve people who are poor, maimed, lame, and blind. We want to serve humanity. You know, you find it's a really bad sign for an individual or a family and most particularly a government when they dehumanize humanity. Whether it's the elderly or the unborn or the undesirables. Of course, you know, that's what Hitler did. He, he just started with what most people felt were like agreeably as Darwinist undesirables. And then he just started going for all the different people groups that weren't his people group. But he kind of started with a, 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 a bare minimum. See, he got, all the, he got Germany to agree they didn't like the Jews. And then all the undesirables. And as a whole, uh, middle class and upper middle class Germany could agree with that. And then let them take over the Lutheran church and then bring religion into it. But by the time he was done, he's trying to eradicate every people group on the planet except his. That's how it works. We need to value every human being. And, you know, and there are people who don't value, um, there are parts of the world that are very barbaric and they, 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 they dehumanize people. They dehumanize women. Uh, 
you know, just being involved with Shepherd's Field Ministry in China for years and yeah, new government policy, they're, they're sending all the orphans back to their regions. My wife's like, why would they do that for all these years? It's a, it's a government-imposed thing by the communist government to, they're, you know, they're, they're, generally the bigger government gets, the less effective it is, especially if it's a godless government like the Chinese government because they're communists and they don't believe in God, they believe that they are God. <clears throat> and so when Luke Caldwell talked about adopting physically handicapped kid in China, children, which he did, uh, up there in Boise, but when he walked around parts of China with his children he was adopting, that people would hiss, they would literally hiss, and they would like spit and, and make gestures. You just can never dehumanize, and even if people like, so just because someone sees things that way doesn't mean we should see things that way, and it, because if someone evaluates my life and your life, we still have to value their life. See, here's, here's what happens is like, we often get personal. If someone devaluates, like, let's say, you know, the vast majority of the Muslim world and uh, many of those Islamic states over there in the Middle East, they, they consider us the great Satan, America, the West, anything like that. And they, they, they see life differently and they devalue us and they demean us and they see us less than themselves. So we naturally would want to respond the same way, like, well, you devalue me, I devalue you. I can't relate to you. I can't relate to people who strap bombs to their body and just blow themselves up and think it's going to please God. So I, I, in a sense, I repulse you. But that's what's dangerous. And the Lord has taught me that we have to be really careful that we don't retaliate with dehumanization of people just because they dehumanize people. You follow me? Just because someone dehumanizes you and I doesn't mean we dehumanize them. Because this is what separates us from people like that. This is what brings Christ in the equation in a world in need of a savior. Because those people are alive for one reason, not to blow themselves up in the name of religion, but to be saved in the name of the great Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why they're alive. And if we dehumanize them as a responsive uh, act of racism against them because of their racism against us, then we are no better than they are. And we degrade the purpose of Christ in his coming. We can't let someone dehumanizing us make us dehumanize them. We need to serve people unconditionally. And there's a lot of parts of the world I'm in no hurry to go to, nor do I ever. I'll be quite happy if I never go to certain parts of the world in my, my life. I'll be happy to send your children in Jesus' name with our resources. But I don't want to go. And I think many of you can relate to that. But nonetheless, we need to value those people and those parts of the world. And seek to understand them and bring Christ into the equation. We, need, we don't want to just bless people because they can bless us back in the temporal. We want to bless people because we value all humanity. We're the exact polar opposite of Hitler and his death camps. Of Stalin and his death camps. And, and the Khmer Rouge and their death camps. We're the exact opposite. All these governments and cultures of death in human history, from Rome to Hannibal and all these people, we are the exact opposite. We're the church. And Jesus came to give life, and that more abundantly. And that's who we are. Verse 15, the conversation expands. We're still at the dinner table. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, so this is one of the group invited, heard these things, and he said to him, Blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. And then he, Jesus, said to him, A certain man gave a great supper and invited many, and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things 
are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. And I ask you to have me excused. And another said, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. And I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. So these servants came and reported these things to his master. And then his master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go quickly into the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in here the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded, and still there is no room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who are invited shall taste my supper." As far as we know, this is the end of the conversation at the dinner table because the next verse talks about a great multitude. It's a different audience. This all happened in one night on a Sabbath at the leader of the Pharisee's house. Now, Jesus obviously, <laughs> because he spoke truth and he's God, people would, he would get responses. You know, Zacchaeus is like, if I've sold anything, I will fold I will repay fourfold, right? Like Jesus brought responses from people. And here, this one person at the table goes like, he knows, he knows it's supernatural what's going on. And he says, uh, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. Like, it's kind of a random statement, right? It's kind of like Peter saying, should we build tents for you and them? You know, the Mount of Transfigurations, it's kind of got like, it's like, uh, 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 blessed, blessed he eats bread in the kingdom of God. Because what are they doing? They're eating bread at the Pharisee's house. And blessed are, are those who eat yeah, the, the kingdom of God. Awkward moment, right? Everyone's like, you know, like, what, what, so what was that all about? And then Jesus tells another parable. It's another parable. And this is the parable of the invited guest, right? The great supper. Oh, great supper. But we see the excuses, right? So look at this. <clears throat> With one accord, they began to make excuses. You know, I just love what a contrast the church is in the book of Acts. They're in one accord as they're available to the Lord and what God wanted to do. In this parable, these excuses are of one accord. Is it A? Oh, I just bought property. Is it B? I just bought new investments. C, I just got married. Family stuff. Or is it D, all of the above? They're all of one accord. They're all excuses. They're all excuses. They're all excuses in this parable for why they can't go to the feast. And the feast represents the kingdom. And isn't it interesting that as those who would have been prestigious and invited, the religious leaders, have excuses for not going to the feast, suddenly, here we go again, we've got the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. So now Jesus is expanding what he just taught previously in this setting, and now he's expanding as to who is going to the feast because they're invited. So the religious leaders would be like the three people with the excuses for not coming, but whoever wants to come, they can come. The common people heard Jesus godly, and, and they can come, and they're welcome to come. The poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind, it's the same titles that he gave for humanity when he was addressing the one who invited everyone to his house, the, the ruler, the leader of the Pharisees. And the invitation goes out, and he says in verse 24, those are invited, they're not, they're not going to be here, but these other ones, they get to come. And, it, you know, really, we see that with Jesus, that the Jews... 
nationally, in a sense, rejected the gospel, and then the gospel was extended to the Gentiles, all the nations. That's the history of the book of Acts. That's the history of the church age. While the gospel is to the Jew first, ethnically, all Jews are welcome to come. That's why we have missionaries that we know who are there in Tel Aviv right now in Israel. That's why my my in-laws, Jim Gallagher, goes to Palestine, to the region with the Palestinian territories, and he does stuff in Tel Aviv, and he visits Palestinian pastors. He visits Messianic pastors, like the Gospels for the Jews first. So it's not like they're excluded. But God prophesied throughout the Old Testament that his plan wasn't just for the Jews, but for all nations. And this poor, blind, maimed, and, and lame kind of comes in that classification as well. And then we know in the book of Acts, in the early church, when all those things are happening, the church leaders, even within their et- Jewish ethnic culture, had to defend that God was saving people who were not of a Jewish background. But we close tonight if we think about how the first lesson was for humility and the second lesson was for humanity. The third lesson has to be no excuses. Just no excuses. Just no excuses with God. You know, if we can can get through life and get to the end of our life where we don't make excuses, man, we have really done well in life. Just, I've shared with this quite a bit recently in the pulpit just through various other topics that I'm talking about, but it's amazing how we make excuses. Many of you grew up watching Happy Days where Fonzie could never say he was sorry, he was wrong. I was rude, 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 right? It's like you could just never say he was wrong, and it's like, we're like that. Yeah, but, you know, and I mentioned when Jennifer said to me, just just say you're sorry, and don't, just say you're sorry, and let that be the end of the sentence. You don't have to put a comma, but the dogs provoked me, but, you know, the neighbors were playing the drums at four on a Saturday, you know, it's like, just... I've gotten wiser. I just say I'm sorry. Because that usually, nine out of ten times, that works anyways, right? It really does. But we, we just always want excuses. Even recently, I had a situation where I was apologizing for something and I, in a text. And I just, I just wanted to explain why I was like that. And I'm like, forget it. It doesn't matter. Just say you're sorry. And then they responded, thank you. And we don't need the excuse. I've told the story a few times, but I close with this story about me, myself, and Pastor Chuck. Early on at staff at Calvary in the summer of 2000, and had all these different things we were doing with the bands and all this stuff, and we're about the Lord's business. And we're in that staff meeting, and Chuck asked which pastors would be willing to host a family camp. At that time, they're doing three family camps a summer. And uh, I remember, like, John Mann's like, I could do one. And then someone else raised their hand, probably like Terry Reynolds, I can do one. And I said, oh, oh, Chuck, I can't because. And I'll never forget what he did. He just waved his hand. Like just, just like that, like just stop. Man, top five embarrassing moments in my life. All those pastors, that was a, that was a good gut. I had it coming. But Chuck, I mean, if I wasn't so busy traveling the country with Jeremy Camp and Phil Wickman, I'd do that for you. Like, who, who's, who's, who's paying? Is Jeremy Camp paying you? Phil Wickham? Who's paying you? He didn't reprove me. He just did that. He didn't say anything. He just went, stop. The hand motion. Now, I'll tell you what, next year, 2001, we're ready for that staff meeting. Okay, 
All right, hey, John, man, get behind me. Charlie, man, I'll sit over there. Because there's only two family camps the next year. And he, that question went out. I was like, this is my, not my first rodeo. I'll do it. It's the only one I did. We got the flu. We had the flu at family camp. But by golly, we were there. <laughs> you know, and it's like, just no excuses. Just, that's why the Bible always says this today. If serving the Lord is dependent upon something favorable, or, oh, I've got a new business adventure, I've got a new property, it's like, forget it. Just either, you're here to serve the Lord. And if he says, just, if you're called to do it, do it. And if you're not, then don't make excuses. Just do it. No excuses. Humility, humanity, no excuses. We don't need excuses. Just do what the Lord's calling you to do as best you can discern with steps of faith and obedience. Amen? Yeah, Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight and its application to our lives. What an amazing dinner.